0: This is episode 497 of the Leaving Laodicea Broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In Acts chapter 19, we have a controversial encounter between Paul, the Holy Spirit, and some believers in Ephesus. One side of this controversy claims it proves the Holy Spirit can and will come upon believers after salvation, thus justifying much of the fringe charismatic movement. The other side, just as dogmatic, claims this encounter proves nothing more than the fact that these disciples were lost until Paul preached Christ to them. The question at the heart of this controversy is this. We find it in Acts 19, 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And quite honestly, your answer or on what side of this great theological chasm you choose to land will have a critical effect on whether you experience the higher Christian life. In this message, we'll discover that it's not how much of the Holy Spirit we received when we believed, but how much of ourselves we are giving to the Holy Spirit or how much of us the Holy Spirit is receiving on a daily basis. This is what makes the higher Christian life so appealing. It is more of him possessing more of us to be used to bear the Father's fruit and bring glory to Jesus. So join with us as we unpack this amazing truth about the higher Christian life as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I wanna take a few minutes you don't mind and just review what we talked about last week because last week was incredibly important foundation couple passages that will kind of make this all begin to unfold for you the first one of course is a very familiar passage in john chapter 14 where jesus is now describing the one he is to send the Holy Spirit, the one that will take the place of Jesus in the disciple's lives and in our lives so that Jesus can literally say, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come back to you, but he comes back to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, this other helper, another helper, this allo's helper. He says this, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper, that he, this helper, may abide with you forever. Well, who is this? It is the Spirit of Truth. Whom the world cannot receive. Watch this. It cannot receive this Holy Spirit because it neither sees him, the world can't see him, nor knows him. The world does not know the Holy Spirit. The world can't see the Holy Spirit. So therefore, the world doesn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. It's the difference between being lost and saved. But you know him. How? How? How do we know something that the world doesn't know? For he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells around you, he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Last part of this passage is absolutely profound. What we talked about last week, you have to understand this before we move on. But you know him. The word is gnosko. You know him experientially. You know him intimately. You know him as Adam knew Eve, as Joseph did not know his wife Mary until after they brought their firstborn son, that you know him with a, with a love and an affection and a favor. You know him. How do I know the Holy Spirit? For he dwells with you right now. When, when Jesus was sharing this, he will be in you in the future. That's Acts chapter 2. That is present tense for us today. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you look at this passage, it's really simple. We talked about last week. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, I know the Holy Spirit. He's third person of the Trinity. No, 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 no. That's knowing about the Holy Spirit. Not asking if you know theologically and doctrinally all the truths about the Holy Spirit. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Holy Spirit like you know Jesus? Do you know the Holy Spirit like you know God the Father? Well, no, because God the Father is most important, and Jesus is second important, second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is like this force that emanates from both of them. He's not really important at all, and we miss the whole point of what the Godhead is all about. If you remember, God eternally exists as three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father, yet we slight him a lot. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Jesus said that you will know him, that you do know him because he lives in you. Jesus doesn't live in us. God the Father doesn't live in us. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So when Jesus said that we will know the Holy Spirit, he expected us to know him. I have been around you for three and a half years, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem, he says, and I will die physically. I will ascend up into heaven. I will spend all this time while you're on earth at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Well, Jesus, you're leaving us. Uh, I I, I feel lonely without you. No, 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 I'm not leaving you. I'm going to send you me in the person of the Holy Spirit who will be with every single one of you. I will not leave you as orphans. Last week, do you know the Holy Spirit? And if you don't, it should well up in you a hunger to, because Jesus said one of the marks between lost people and saved people is saved people know the Holy Spirit. Second verse, talking about this higher Christian life, this very familiar verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so you may be able to prove what is the perfect good will of God. We talked about this last week. Here's what it means. I urge or beg you, therefore, brethren, he's not talking to lost people here, he's talking to saved people, by the mercies of God, because what God has done for you, that you, your job, you present what you possess. You don't present yourself. You don't present your mind. You don't present your money. You don't present your strength. You don't present your personality. You don't present a whole bunch of other things, it could say. You present one thing and one thing only, your bodies. Your bodies, your flesh. And you present it to him as a living sacrifice. Not something that dies, but something that has been given to the worship of someone else that you've taken all rights off. It doesn't belong to me anymore. It's now yours. You do with it what you will. Well, my body's pretty messed up. Doesn't matter. God sees it as holy. And he will accept you, whatever you present to him. Which is your reasonable, logical, expected service based on what he's done for you. So what does that mean, to present your bodies? Well, it means that you no longer belong to you. And there's a dozen verses that talk about you are bought with a price. You can't do the things that you want to do anymore. You can't, you know, your the flesh wars against your spirit, your spirit against the flesh, and you need to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And You present your bodies to him. Your souls, because of your salvation, have already been redeemed. Your body now is being presented to someone. Your soul is something that we're going to be talking about next week. When you present it to the Lord, your personality, your will, your volition, your choices, the decisions that you want to make, what makes you you, when you present that to him, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. question we talked about last week was this. Who are you presenting your body to? Well, not God the Father. God the Father is never revealed to us as having a body. God the Father is sitting on his throne. He's always pretty much sat on his throne. The only time we see God the Father is when we see him showing up like on Mount Sinai or something of that nature and his quaking and fear and thunder and lightning. And Okay, but Jesus, we're not presenting our body to Jesus. He has a body. He came to earth and presented himself covered with flesh. As a matter of fact, in the In Revelation chapter 5, John sees Jesus as the lamb as if slain, and it may be the fact that every time we see Jesus throughout all eternity that he bears upon himself, we see him and the marks of his love when he atoned for our sin on the cross. Jesus, we don't present our body to Jesus. Jesus has a body, but who doesn't? By design, the Holy Spirit comes down here, and the Holy Spirit wants to live in you. You. He's he's no longer like Jesus where Jesus lives with me. He's next to me. Or if he's in downtown Gastonia, I have to go down there and be with him. Because he's now confined voluntarily to time and space. Instead, he's now, instead of being with me and outside of me and alongside of me, now he's chosen to live in me by inhabiting who I am. That's all these phrases Paul uses in his letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, Christ in you. So why, why did he want to do that? Because... The Christian life, I call it the higher Christian life because all of us have pretty much lived a a standard American Christian life. But the true Christian life, it's not really a higher Christian life. It's like, as I've shared with you before, what Watchman Nee called the normal Christian life is that it's not you living under the power of him. It's him living his life through you. So everything that happens in your life, you get no glory for it, he does He produces the fruit. He gives you the power. People look at the things that you do, and they go, wow, you're something. And you go, no, 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 no. I could never do this on my own. It's God working in me. It's God empowering me. It's God doing these mighty works. He and he alone gets all the glory. Not for people out there, but even in here. I know who I am and I know who he is, and I know that anything good in me comes from him living in me, and that person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, the one that we're supposed to know, expected to know, but that we usually don't. So how how is this happening? We have been talking about this higher Christian life, a phrase that was coined in the 1840s, and it basically talks about, for most Christians there's like two levels of Christianity. For most football players, there's two levels of football players. For most t-ball players, for most soccer players, for most musicians. For college students, there's two tiers of college students. For employers and employees and companies, there's two tiers of companies. There's those people that just go through the motions and just like to be on the team. And then there's people that work all the time because they want to start. They want to play pro ball. They want, to, they want to make something of this. They want to put the hours in and the time in to exemplify the very best they could be at whatever endeavor they do. We see that with employees. You know, I got this employee that, man, as soon as his eight hours, bam, he clocks out and he's gone. you are got to make sure he gets his 15-minute smoke break and all that kind of stuff. And then I've got these employee, employees that go the extra mile that I can always count on that, that are there and they want to advance in the company. When it comes time for rewarding an advancement, who do we give it to? The guy that works hard or puts in the hours is, is much better at it. Same thing with sports, same things with every, every, every area of our life. We've got two people that want to play the piano. One person really wants to play the piano and takes the same lessons from the same teacher and practices four or five hours a day. The other one just goes through the motions the minimum amount of time. And one exceeds and one doesn't, yet they both can play the piano. We see it in every area of life except the spiritual life. There is a, a difference between being given salvation, being given the Spirit, As I'm jumping ahead of myself, I know, giving the Spirit as a guarantee of our salvation and receiving the Spirit and the fullness of everything he has for us. This is an example of the higher Christian life. Somebody who has now yielded their body to the Holy Spirit. And so what does that person do? They are no longer fashion-like or conformed to the image of this world. And I shared with you last week, the world here for world is not cosmos in the Greek. It means the culture in which they live. Well, everybody else is doing it. Why shouldn't I do it? Everybody else says it's okay. I should. Everybody else laughs at that joke. Why shouldn't I laugh at that joke? But we're to be transformed. That's where we get the word uh, metamorphosis on this, this amazing act where you've got this earthbound worm caterpillar that goes into a cocoon, and why is in a cocoon, something happens that we can't see that changes the very structure of what that worm is, and when that worm or or caterpillar comes out of the cocoon, it now has wings, it is no longer earthbound, it flies, may be transformed by the renewing of our mind, so that we may be able to prove and test what is good and acceptable, well-pleasing the perfect will of God. This does not happen to everyone. This will not happen to you until you meet the requirement. And to meet the requirement is that I am to submit my body as a living sacrifice to him. And if you want to get specific about it, the him in the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. Well, how is that done? How is that done? I mean, we got two classes of Christians today. We have one class of Christians that say the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything in our lives like he used to do in the book of Acts. We have another class of Christians that say, oh, he does everything uh, that he did in, in the book of Acts. Now, look, you can tell by my life how the Holy Spirit is moving in me. Well, this group over here looks at this group and says, no, I don't really see it. See, like showy stuff, but I don't see any real spiritual fruit. And these people over here say, man, you're just dull and boring. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. And so we've got these two groups of, of believers who are trying really hard to make everybody else fit in their camp. And what the Bible teaches is neither one of those. Neither one of those. Watch this. We looked at John and we looked at Romans. Now I want to look at a very controversial passage in Acts chapter 19. I went ahead and jumped on this one because let's go ahead and, uh, and deal with the uncomfortable passage for non-charismatics like we are ourselves. Acts chapter 19 verses 1 through 7. Look at the first couple verses here. And it happened, Paul's just on his journey, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And when he showed up at Ephesus, he found some, note the word here, disciples. He didn't find seekers, he didn't find lost people, he didn't find a bunch of people who didn't even know about Jesus or anything that he led to the Lord within a really incredible gospel presentation. He specifically says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that these people were disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, and these people believed. When you believed, when you believed in Jesus, when you came to faith, you were now a disciple. Did you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I mean, why would he even say that? I mean, what did he see in them that he, or what did he not see in them that he expected to see in them if they were true disciples and true believers? There was something obviously missing in their life. I mean, I can imagine they're all together having a Bible study and Paul walks in, hey, he sits down with them and they start talking about the manifold glory of God and they start talking about the fact that his grace has been given to us and we're redeemed from our sins and he was raised from the dead and because of that, we don't have to fear death anymore and the group of people there probably went like this. Yeah, I know that. I I know that. Is there something wrong here? And probably acted like a lot of Christians do today. Well, what's, what's, what's going on? And he immediately realized that something he had, something Peter preached in Acts chapter two, repent and be baptized every one of you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Doesn't say you'll receive eternal life. Doesn't say that you'll be forever in heaven with Jesus. Doesn't even say all your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future forever. He says that you'll receive what we just received, the Holy Spirit who turned a cowardly fisherman into a dynamo for Christ. What was missing here? They were called disciples. They were called believers in Jesus, but they were lacking something two schools. Well, they were lacking the Holy Spirit. It's pretty much exactly what the scripture says. School over here. No, 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 no. They can't lack the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes to you when you're saved. By the way, that is true. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come in part. He comes in all. And that's also true. So they must not be saved. That's what it is. These people were lost. And so therefore he recognized since they were lost, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Okay. But he called them disciples. And he said, when you believe. And nowhere in this passage does Paul share the gospel with them. Nowhere. There's an assumption that they were already saved, missing something. It continues. So they said to him, I don't even know what you're talking about. We never heard of this Holy Spirit. Who in the world is the Holy Spirit? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm clueless. Well, if, if you don't know the Holy Spirit, let me ask you this question. Into what then were you baptized? To make sure you don't get confused here. This is not a baptism in the Holy Spirit. When Paul is saying baptized, he's talking just that, boom. In what name were you dunked? In what name were you immersed? In what name, after you came to faith, as an outward sign of what happened inwardly with you, when what name were you baptized? If you were baptized by John the Baptist, you were baptized in a baptism of repentance for the Messiah who would come. If you knew it was Jesus, who was the Messiah, you'd be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's the same thing with us. When he's talking about baptism, that's exactly what he means. Baptism. It doesn't mean something different that they knew it was different, and you know it's different. It's a very straightforward question. After you got saved, you were baptized. In what name were you baptized? Well, we were baptized in John's baptism. Uh, Okay. So that's like an Old Testament thing, that the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit was totally unknown to them, yet Paul did not indicate they were lost. He didn't preach the gospel to them. Here's what he did. He began to explain the baptism that they were under, John's baptism, versus who Jesus truly is, since now the Messiah has come. And so he explains it to them. John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. We see that in the early gospel accounts. Saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Do you realize, Ephesians' uh, disciples who believed, they were baptized into John's baptism, that there is a Messiah coming, and when that Messiah comes, that he will set everything straight, and I want to repent of my sins because the Messiah is here. Do you realize, guys, that the Messiah has already come? You were obviously baptized into John's baptism before Jesus showed up. His name is Jesus Christ. Let me, that's, that's incredible. That's wonderful then, that we want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean anything more than it says. They probably said, well, well, let's go get baptized. Well, there's a pool over there. Let's all go get in the pool. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you just like we do today. That's all it means. They were like Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints, who were saved by faith, just like we're saved by faith, but they were saved by faith in the one who was coming Versus us who is saved by faith because of the time in which we live of the one who has come. Understand the difference? It's really simple. Explain the Messiah had come. They were baptized in his name. There was no indication they were lost. Nowhere in here does Paul share the gospel account with them. And it seems like if he did, he would have. But he didn't. Because what he noticed in their life not was that they were lost, but they had no power of the Holy Spirit in their life. They probably just went through the motions like many of us do today. Yet they were called disciples, and they, they believed. Now here's where it gets weird. After all, that is over with. And... They understood the Holy Spirit now living in them. They understood that the Holy Spirit is their deposit and their guarantee of their future inheritance to come. Ephesians chapter one. They understood. Next chapter eight, or Romans chapter eight. If you're not born of the Spirit, you're not of Him. They understood all of that, and yet Paul did this very controversial for this group of believers. And when he had laid hands on them. Why would you even need to do that, Paul? We wouldn't do that in a Baptist church today. We wouldn't do that in a Presbyterian, a Methodist church, or, you know, that's just Church of God, Assembly of God, kind of loopy stuff. We don't do that. I don't understand. Why did you do that? When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. I thought the Holy Spirit already lived in them because they just got saved like He lived with us. But that's what the Scripture teaches. But now the Holy Spirit comes on them after not their salvation not before they came, became disciples or believed, but at some point in time after this, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Eh, we don't deal with those verses anymore because it talks about tongues and prophecy, and we don't believe in tongues and prophecy, so eh, let's just move on to uh, Acts 19, verse number 8. We don't want to address those because that just makes us feel uncomfortable. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now, if they were lost and just received Christ, then as soon as they received Christ, the Holy Spirit would have come into their life like he did you and I. True? So then, this is not necessary. This is pointless. I mean, why would you lay hands on someone to receive what they already have if they were lost and they just received Christ? Because the Holy Spirit comes into your life instantaneously the moment you were second, nanosecond that you were justified. Tons of passages that preach that. But if they were already saved, and the Holy Spirit lived within them, why would you do this? That seems unnecessary, because according to our theology, according to what we understand, that you have everything there is, so why would he lay hands on them, and the Holy Spirit come upon them, and they're doing things for ministry? I mean, that doesn't make any sense based on the two camps that exist today in at least Western Christianity doesn't make any sense at all so what can we learn here what is the lord trying to show us about the holy spirit and you know you know i i don't i don't like that explanation as a matter of fact that explanation feels me feels uncomfortable so are there any other explanations besides what it clearly says in scripture is there are there any other explanations that can explain what just happened well yeah yeah here's the one they teach in seminary you ready for this one I love this one. God only allows signs. Now, this is this camp. God only allows signs, tongues, prophecies, miracles, stuff of that nature, as the gospel moved outside of Jerusalem, outside of the enclave of just Jewish Christians, and when it would reach other people groups, then God would allow signs to happen only in those people groups, so that the guys in Jerusalem would realize, wow, I guess the Holy Spirit is actually ministering to the Samaritans. Philip goes and he preaches to the Samaritans, and all of a sudden the Samaritans come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Word gets back to the true church in Jerusalem that this is happening. They send Peter and some of the others out there to kind of examine and make sure these people are really Christians. They lay hands on them. The uh, Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues and prophesy. Okay. Or Gentiles, Peter's on the roof of his house and all of a sudden he sees his sheep coming down and these, these unclean animals and kill and eat. I, Lord, I'm not going to kill and eat because I've never touched anything unclean. You know, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. And it was a sign that Cornelius was coming, knocking on his door. Can you come to a Gentile house? Can you share the gospel with us? So Peter shares the gospel with them. While he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And they begin to prophesy and speak in tongues, and all of a sudden, the, the Peter says, "Well, gosh, if if the Holy Spirit has authenticated for us their salvation, there's no reason why they shouldn't be baptized and included in the church." And okay, and then the next group of people are those people who were baptized under the uh, baptism of John that I just read. So really, really, what's happening here? is the only reason why the Lord is allowing this to happen is he's showing us, but you don't learn this until you're getting your master's degree, that he doesn't, is showing us that this is his motif of using these gifts to authenticate to these unbelieving Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that his gospel is actually moving out to people they were prejudiced against. As a Jew, I don't want to go to Samaritans. Look, he saved Samaritans. Get out there and minister to them. I don't want to go to Gentiles. Get out there and take care of them. Okay, that's, that's a plausible explanation. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty much what they teach you in seminary. That all this is is a sign of the proof of the Holy Spirit moving out into various people groups. There is no way anyone, and I'm, she I say this right, a painting with a broad brush, I don't think there's anyone ever that would read the account in the book of Acts and come up to that conclusion that's something that you have to be taught, that you begin with a presupposition. Signs and prophecy and miracles and all that kind of stuff no longer exist today because these people say it does and they're wrong. And so we're right. And so therefore I have to come up with some reason to explain this. And if you're going to, that's a pretty good reason. That's kind of a seminary reason where you sit back and go, ah, it makes sense to me. But it's not at all what the scripture says. You have to read something into it to kind of, oh, God, this was your plan. You just didn't let anybody know. Kind of like this. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. The love chapter. Since this camp that pretty much all of us belong to, since this camp, doesn't believe that any of the signed gifts exist today because this camp over here, that's all they do is prophesy and slain in the spirit and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're not going out in hospitals and people getting healed. That's all they do. Since we don't want to be part of that, we have to come up with some proof text that proves that we're right and they're wrong. And so the classic one for the cessation of gifts, meaning that, Think about that. That God lays out for us the book of Acts and tells us that's how the church began. That's how the Holy Spirit moved. That's how you're supposed to live. No, 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 no. You're not supposed to live that way. Only they were allowed to live that way. You guys have to live substandard to that. Or we have this five-fold ministry apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. Well, you can't have apostles if you don't believe in spiritual gifts. And we don't need prophets anymore because prophets, are, you know, we have the word of God and that's all we need. So instead of the fivefold ministry, the church is now functioning on 60% of that. And then that's the abundant life of Christ. And when we're not able to do things like they did in the book of Acts. We blame it on God. No, it's our inerrant theology It just... Holds on to a mindset that we've all been taught and feel comfortable with. Here's the proof text. Verse 4 Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all truth, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Then we stop. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Yes, yes, there it is. Prophecies won't exist forever, so when do they quit? Um, they quit like, uh, like about the year 100 AD when the canon was complete and we had our Bible, therefore there's no need for other revelations. So uh, about the year 90, 100, 110, right in there, that's when they all quit. Prophecies, they will fail. And where there are tongues, yes, tongues, great. We're going to stick it to those people over there. They will cease. And where there is knowledge, oops, knowledge it will vanish away. I don't really want knowledge to vanish away. It doesn't matter. Two out of three is not bad. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, whatever that means, then that which is in part will be done away with. What is the perfect here? Well, let's just keep reading. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, now, right now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then at some point in time, face to face. Now I know in part, ties up to the other verse we're looking at, but then I shall know just as I am known. When is the then? When will you know all things? When will you see face to face? When will everything be clear to you? when Christ comes. The perfect, when reading this, is Christ. I just, I can't imagine anybody coming up, no, the perfect, when the perfect comes, what is the perfect? Oh, it's the word of God. What Paul was meaning when he wrote this letter to the book of Corinth, which the word of God all hasn't even been written at that point, but he meant the word of God that was going to be collected, some of his letters and gospel accounts, some hadn't even been written yet, and all put together in like 60 years from now, that will be the perfect, and so therefore there's our justification for doing away with all prophecies and tongues and knowledge. Nobody picks that up reading it on their own. You have to be taught that. Someone has to explain that to you. Oh, no, 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 that, that's not what it means. What it, what it says, oh, no, 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 but that's not what it means. Well, what does it mean? Well, it means this, that justifies our position. And if it's true that this was just a movement out into people groups, every time people spoke in tongues and Holy Spirit came upon them after salvation, it was just a, a movement out of people groups How in the world do we explain the Apostle Paul's conversion? I mean, watch this. Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he has a vision. He falls off his donkey. He sees Jesus. You know, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Here's what you you want me to do. Here's what I want you to do. And so for three days, Paul was blind. He neither ate nor drank. He was in this room with these scales over his eyes, probably looking at his life and the fact that he just met the living Lord Jesus. And God speaks to Ananias. And God tells Ananias, I want you to go on straight street to a man named Paul. He's praying, and I want you to go lay hands on him so he'll gain his sight. Lord, I've heard terrible things about this man. No, he's a chosen vessel of mine. You go, because I have great plans for him. He's going to bring my words to the Gentiles and to kings. So Ananias goes. Look what happens here. Ananias went on his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Pagan Paul, lost Paul, Paul who needs to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, repeat after me the sinner's prayer. No, brother Paul. His assumption was he had already come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because Ananias didn't one time share the gospel with him. One time. Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought he was. I mean, I I, I don't understand it. kind of messes with my theology. And then as soon as Paul had this endowment of the Holy Spirit, this power of the Holy Spirit, yielded himself to the Holy Spirit. He immediately began his ministry with power, not like the power we don't have, but the power that we pray that we have to go into the marketplace and Walmarts and places of that nature and and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He ate some food and immediately went out, and look what he did. Immediately he preached the Christ in the Jewish temples, and the synagogues, among people who wanted to kill him. And he preached that this Jesus is the Son of God. He preached blasphemy to the Jews. How can a man do that who knows nothing like we know of the gospel account? He met Jesus, he was in three days thinking about it. Oh, Ananias came, he received his sight, thank you for that, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then God just does amazing things to him. Then all who were heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, that he has come here for that purpose, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Yeah, that's him. And Paul increased all the more in strength. Are you every day with Jesus sweeter than the day before? Is every day with Jesus you rely more on the Holy Spirit so you're stronger today? You're more bold today? You know more about him today than you did yesterday? Or are we just kind of limping along like everybody else on the standard level of Christianity, knowing that from our vantage point, there is a higher Christian life? They confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving, proving to their priest that this Jesus is the Christ. Well, I... I, I need to ask a question. Doesn't the Scripture teach that we receive the Holy Spirit the moment we're saved? Listen very carefully. Absolute. 100% without any doubt. Period. We find that in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. We find it in Romans 8, 9. We find it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and many, many other verses. There is no denying that when you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live with you. I believe all of the Holy Spirit came to live with you. He didn't just come halfway and you have to do something to get the other half. Everything the Holy Spirit has that makes up his being came to live with you the moment you were saved. Well, if that's the case, then why do I need anything else? Well, look at your own life, don't you? Don't we? We look at Acts, we look at heroes of the faith, we look at people that are living this life of sold outness to the Holy Spirit, a life of yielding to the Holy Spirit, a life of fervent devotion to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, they accomplished, and the Holy Spirit accomplished amazing things through them, and we're okay living in the gray area. This is the argument that I put up for years on this side. Well, I have everything there is. Yeah, but does everything that the Holy Spirit is have all of you? That's the key. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but does he have you? And the point of the higher Christian life, the point of Romans 12, 1 and 2, is for you to give him as a living sacrifice more of you, your bodies. Next week we'll talk about what it means to yield to him your soul. And if it's true that the Holy Spirit lives in us, then how do I explain all these other passages in the book of Acts? How do I explain church history? How do I explain the heroes of my faith? And the heroes of your faith are people who did more. No. The heroes in your faith are people who the Lord did more in their life than he's doing in yours. And, and he's not a respecter of persons, so the only reason why God is doing the only reason why you and I are not Billy Graham are used as much as Billy Graham is. He was an evangelist, you and I may be something else, is because Billy Graham devoted more of his life to the Lord, yielded more of his life to the Lord, surrendered more of his life to the Lord than we have. We're holding it on to ourselves, calling our own shots, like like that really matters. It's the surrendered life, the absolute yielded life that is the higher Christian life. Here's a way to explain it. And I'm not going to develop this much here. I just want to get your mind thinking, and we'll talk about that more next week or, or maybe, maybe next week in some of the things that I send out weekly. There's a difference between giving and receiving. I share this every time that I share the gospel with somebody. Giving. Giving. Something has already been done has been given to me. For God so loved the world that that's his job. He gave his only begotten son. So salvation is available to everyone. It it, it doesn't just go to the Jews. It doesn't just go to males or people who live in a particular country or make a certain amount of money or have a certain IQ. The gospel has been given to everyone. But not everyone is saved because it's not just a giving part There's a receiving part that cry, God gave his son and offered salvation to everyone. All that Jesus is now is offered to you. Some receive it, some don't. Here's what he said in John chapter one. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave, I'm sorry, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. When I share, I know I shared this Tuesday, when I share Christ with somebody, I usually take a dollar bill out. I think I use carols on Tuesday. I take a dollar bill out of somebody's. Of course, it's a 20 for Debbie. Anyway, okay, from your wallet. Anyway, so I say, yeah, take a dollar bill, and I'll say, listen, I want to give you this gift. I said, uh, I earned it. I said, it belongs to me. It's not your birthday. You don't earn it. Uh, you don't deserve it. But I just want to give it to you as just a token of my love for you. I said, and I hold it in front of them, and I go, when does this gift become yours? And most people will sit with their hands on the lap and go, I don't know. That's really simple. When does it become yours? I'll stick it closer to their face. When is it yours? It's when I reach out and take it from you. Yes, it's when you reach out and receive it from me. Salvation is done that way. God has already provided the atonement for the sins of mankind for every single one, no matter how bad their sins are. And he's offering it to them, but until they reach up and receive what he's offered, on his terms, nothing happens. True? All of us that are saved are saved because we receive the gift of God given to us. It works exactly the same way with the Holy Spirit. That the deeper Christian life, it's like like the Holy Spirit is going, there's so much I want to do through you. There's so so many ways I want to bless you. I mean, Paul said, now uh, unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think by the power that exists in the church, and that power is me, the Holy Spirit, existing in you. But until we reach up and receive that from him as a point of total surrender, then we just simply limp along having been given salvation and haven't received the fullness that comes by submitting your life totally to the Holy Spirit. Is it easy? Not at all. Not at all. It's kind of like salvation. Is getting saved easy? Absolutely. Because God does it all. Is living a sanctified life? No. Because you've got the flesh that's fighting against your spirit. Then yield that to Him. You have your soul that's fighting against the things that you want to do, you don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man that I am. That's a conflict going on in your soul. But the fact is we surrender that to him. We surrender everything to him, and he produces in us probably a life like you and I have never known anybody else has ever lived. But it's true, and it's real, and it's ours for the receiving. Kind of like this passage. Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing and that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, all don't come to repentance. So, what does the word willing mean here? Is that God's sovereign will? No, obviously not. It's his desire. That's what he wants. What he wants is I provided a way for all to come to repentance, but some people don't. It works exactly the same way with the higher Christian life. From existing where we are right now. And again, if your beginning of the higher Christian life was a time when you were 10 spiritually for you and you're less than that now, well, we're not even we're not even up to where we used to be. And God wants us to move us beyond that scale. So our 10 today, our 10 tomorrow would be far greater than our 10 today and the next day and the next day because Bearing spiritual fruit is a sign of our devotion to him. Higher Christian life is received just like salvation is received by faith. You believe what God says and you simply accept that. Some of the requirements are the fact that it usually is preceded by a time of confession and repentance and absolute commitment to him. But I don't know what that looks like. I don't, I don't know what that commitment seems like. I don't know what's involved in that. I know. We don't, we don't have a lot of people that I know personally in the church in the West today are living the kind of life of our heroes of old did in the last 200 years or even prior to that. I don't know many John the Baptist today. I know a lot of charlatans. I know a lot of guys that are popular, but usually there's a, a self-promotion part there. We, we don't have any models to really look up to. And so what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is sharing you the testimonies of some people that we all admire, uh, D.L. Moody and Amy Carmichael, Oswald Chambers, Andrew Murray, Spurgeon, some people like that. But when it comes to actually asking the Lord to take all of you, contemporary examples are hard to find. But I, uh, I have one for you. It's a man named Luis Palau. You ever heard of him? Yeah, he actually passed away uh, this month at the age of 86. He was, a, he was the Billy Graham of Latin America and Africa. It is believed that he's probably shared the gospel with more people than anybody else who has ever lived. We don't hear about him that much because we're Americans and we don't speak Spanish and we're kind of focused a lot on the Billy Graham crusades and, and stuff of that nature. But uh, this was a man that surrendered his life to the Lord very early in the late 50s. He actually was uh, uh, tutored by Billy Graham. He had a desire, comes from a broken home, or, or not a broken home, his father died when he was 14. They were poor, they lost all the money. He dropped out of school, had to work at a bank, got saved, started street preaching. Um, uh, uh, Ray Steadman, who was a great pastor in years past, uh, took him to the United States and trained. him at the Dallas Theological Seminary and started working with the Billy Graham Um, crusade. Matter of fact, he was was translated for Billy Graham at the 1960 Los Angeles Revival, here in this tent. He was translating when he was speaking to Spanish people at that time. Uh, At some point in time, Billy Graham's ministry gave him $200,000 to begin his crusade ministry, is what he wanted to do, and the rest pretty much is history. Simple, simple man. movie just came out um two years ago uh, about his life about the early part of his life and i was asking the lord it was so amazing i was asking the lord lord can you can you show me something that i can show you that will help us understand what it means to literally totally surrender our life to him and i went down i had been watching the movie and i, I have add really bad so i watch about 20 minutes and quit and pick it up the next week um, I've been watching part of the movie and I went and sat down and I clicked play where I'd left off before, and the scene I'm gonna show you was right there. What happened is uh, Luis Palau is struggling. He's struggling because he feels frustrated. He's struggling because you know he doesn't want to go, he doesn't feel like God is letting to start a, a church in Cali, Columbia, or someplace like that. Instead he, he feels like that he wants to take the gospel message to the entire world and He doesn't know what to do and doesn't know how to surrender his life. And so in seminary class, a man named uh, Major Ian Thomas comes and presents a message to him on Galatians 2.20. Ian Thomas was a higher life teacher. He spoke at the Keswick Conventions a lot. He's a really profound man. And when he teaches that, Luis Palau says it was almost like instead of me reading God's word, God was reading it to me. And he turns around and he goes home and he commits his life to the Lord. I want to close by showing you this video clip. This is what it means to surrender your life to him. This is what it means to strive for the higher Christian life or the deeper Christian life. And once Luis did this, it wasn't immediately he was preaching the thousands, but God began to minister through him. That's the point. It's not him doing things for God. Listen to what Ian Thomas says. Not him doing things for God, but God doing things through him. This absolute, abject surrender. And it's when that happens that amazing things take place. So let me, um, let me share this with you if I can. I hope as we continue studying this and looking at this, that you will come with a deep desire to know more of him, to surrender more of your life to him, and to experience what Jesus called the abundant life, what the church 150 years ago called the higher Christian life, and see if God doesn't do amazing things through you. Amen? Let me pray.